0: This is the second part of our special two-part finale for First Gundam, Episode 1.34, Parting Shots. This second part begins right where the first one ended. If you have not yet listened to Part 1, please do so now.
1: There's an interesting trajectory in this episode where ships and mobile suits that have associations to a particular person or group of people experience a kind of slow disintegration (laughs) through the episode until at the end we are left without them. Mm -hmm. This happens with the Gundam, which we've come to think of the Gundam and Amuro as a unit, and yet by the end, the Gundam is effectively gone. Amuro is in the core fighter, I think. When and even he,
0: the core fighter is wrecked.
1: Yes. He just barely manages to get it to where he can eject from it and get to <laughs> his friends.
0: The canopy of the core fighter has been destroyed. He has like a piece of sheet metal.
1: Or canvas or something. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the Ziyong. And while we've seen Shart change mobile suits frequently throughout the series, he's always been able to get one. And it's now it's gone. Mm-hmm. And we know there aren't any left. <laughs>
0: And I want to touch on the association of the Xeong with Shar, because as you pointed out, the name of it, calling it the Xeong, including Xeon in the name, and giving it to Shar when he is perhaps at his most devoted to Xeon, the nation, when he's more or less given up the the quest to destroy the zombies. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It's also a Mobile Suit specifically designed for new types and to incorporate new type abilities as Char is just beginning to come into his new type abilities, but it's incomplete. And it's also not fully incorporating new type abilities the way the Elmeth did. It's more like the Bra Bra, which was only able to partially incorporate them like Char, who is himself an incomplete, not yet fully awakened new type.
1: In addition to being really created for new types, it's clearly created for space battle, right? Mm-hmm. As as the technician says, oh, legs are just for show. <laughs> Doesn't need legs, which if they were on Earth, it might. But if the intention is never to fight outside of space, mm-hmm. yeah, why does it need legs? Yep. We also have the White Base, which has become synonymous with its crew.
0: Frequently during the course of making this podcast, when we have meant the crew of the White Base, we have just conveniently referred to them as the White Base.
1: It's become synonymous with that group of people, and yet they're forced to crash land. Eventually they have to abandon the White Base. And for me, particularly in these three cases, there's one more that Tom will talk about in a moment. But in the case of Amuro in the Gundam, Char in the Zeong, and the White Base crew in the White Base, this disintegration is a metaphor for the fact that these are their wartime identities and the war is ending, you know. A wartime army is many times larger than a normal standing army. The likelihood that when all is said and done, Amuro will still be a Gundam pilot and they will all still be the white base crew is very small.
0: Since the beginning, I've had a feeling like the Gundam was a kind of curse, like some of the cursed weapons that we've talked about in previous episodes. Mm Mm-hmm. The Gundam turned Amuro into a soldier, and the white base turned its crew into soldiers. And none of them can be free of that destiny. None of them can escape until all the weapons are destroyed. And there's a sense of sadness, especially when the white base is destroyed. But really, when the gun tank is destroyed, when the gun cannon is destroyed, when the G-Fighter is destroyed, and when the Gundam is destroyed, a sense of sadness because those are identities dying. Those are aspects of self that are being lost or rejected.
1: And that while this has obviously been a very painful time for all of them, they've also all started to heal together. They've all formed new memories and new relationships. And I don't think this is necessarily in the episode. This is very meta. This is from me. But this sad feeling of without the war to keep them together, what will happen Mm -hmm. to all of those relationships?
0: Yeah. Within our discussion of those machines, I think the Gundam has to occupy a special place because the Gundam is the one, the only one that is abandoned, left as wreckage, and then returned to at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the Gundam in the end that saves Amuro. Yep. He couldn't have made it out without the Gundam.
1: Absolutely not.
0: And I need to give you credit here with the callback to a classic episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown. <laughs> back in episode 15, when we covered Kukuru's Doan's Island. <laughs> because when Amuro goes back to the Gundam, he uses a, a little switch to do something that the Gundam has not done before, which is to eject the top portion of the Gundam so that the core fighter can separate and launch. Mm -hmm. It's never done that before, except once in episode 15... At the very beginning of the episode, when they were testing the combining and separating abilities of the Gundam, ha. and Amuro did this same emergency ejection so that he could launch the Core Fighter. At the time, Ryu Jose has a line about how he doesn't like seeing the Gundam that way. <laughs> when we were discussing that line on the podcast, Nina observed that that felt like foreshadowing because in that moment, it looked like the Gundam had been destroyed. And now we see the return of that capability for only the second time in the whole show when the Gundam has been destroyed. If that
1: was on purpose, that's some impressively long range planning on
0: their (laughs) part. Yeah, it makes the lack of that episode in official releases in English that much more tragic. Now, all of these machine to person connections are ones we would expect in the show. The mobile suits, the white base, even Char's mobile suit. Throughout the entire show, we've seen those connections, we've seen that blurring of the lines between the machine and the person, the body and the extended body. But in this episode, we also get an unexpected one, which is the close association between Girin's Zabi and the supercarrier Dolos. Girin's arc as commander of Abawaku very much tracks with the performance of the dolos in battle and Girin himself puts all of his expectations onto the dolos he even says to himself dolos don't let me down now And we see the Dolos doing very well. We have no reason to suspect that it is in any danger. It is crushing its opponents. It has a massive complement of mobile suits. We see it destroy Federation ship after Federation ship. And then Girin gets shot through the head, and the very next scene is the Dolos being destroyed. And I think what that shows us Because it's nice to point out that that is a thing that happens, but what's the point of it? And I think the point of it is to show Girin's overconfidence, his seeming invulnerability, his actual weakness, and his excessive reliance on this one very strong single ship. And that reflects his overall strategic position of betting everything on this one climactic battle at Abawaku.
1: He's made similar misjudgments all along. He didn't think they would attack Abawaku. He thought they were going to pass it by and attempt to attack the homeland directly, leaving him in a position to make a sort of like flanking attack from Abawaku and the moon, I believe. Mm -hmm. Was totally wrong about (laughs) that.
0: It's also clear that he didn't think that the Federation was going to continue resisting, because when he talks about the war, the course of the war, he talks about needing to punish the Federation for their ill-judged resistance, as though he expected that after initial Zeon success, they would merely roll over and accept the Zabi dictatorship. Girin is not the only fascist leader in history who has overestimated his own strength and underestimated the resilience of his opponents. It's a thing that has happened before.
1: You don't say. Many of the points we've touched on so far, the animation, the character payoffs, the contrasting between Amaru and Shar, the relationship between the characters and the machines, play into the final minutes of the episode. But we decided it was better to talk about the ending as a whole, chronologically.
0: <laughs> if the section we were just discussing was Machina, we are now Ex Machina. <laughs> oh.
1: So I would say this begins from Amuro headed towards the remains of the Gundam, thinking to himself, realizing, oh, this might be the end. When he gets to the Gundam, Lala's music starts playing. Oh, oh, oh. And he has this moment. First, he says, oh, maybe I'll be able to get out after all. But once he's there at the core fighter, he thinks to himself, oh, but what about the white base? What about Selah? And suddenly he can see them all, and we see them, everybody alone or in small groups fighting for their lives, all these people that Amaro cares about now, and Lala tells him that they can be together anytime. So we get a slight sense of like, maybe there's a little death wish there, like, <laughs> like maybe he kind of wants to die so he can be with Lala again, mm-hmm. but she exists outside of time. like Yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> like we can be together any any old time. Time is no longer relevant to me. hmm And he is able to use his power to project himself, almost like Lala used to project herself, but to actually talk to his friends and help them escape their various dangerous situations. So it's a combination both of him being able to project himself and speak to them, but also of that ability Amuro has to slightly anticipate things that are just about to happen so that he can tell Frabo. All right. The next time they stop firing, make a run for it so that he can tell Mirai and Bright, you're going to have to abandon the white base. Yeah. And in this way, he leads all of his friends to safety.
0: In some cases, giving them like Google Maps directions. In 500 meters, turn left.
1: T- turn 90 degrees left.
0: Recalculating.
1: We get a few shots then of the sort of escape rafts, so to speak, of the white base covered in people. So many people that a bunch of them are clinging to the outside. The first of which centers on Bright. There are a lot of people in it, but it centers on Bright. The second of which has a lot of people in it and centers on Sela. Then everybody starts wondering, ah, did Amaro get out? Like, I can't hear him anymore. Bright tries to tell Sayla, like, come on, you're a space-noid. <laughs> you're, a, you're, <laughs> you're, a you're a daughter of, of Zeon. <laughs> can't you, like, call him?
0: <laughs> can't you do new type stuff?
1: And everybody's struggling and struggling. And then the orphans are like, oh, to the right.
0: Yeah. The orphans play their hit single a little bit to the right and then straight on.
1: (laughs) And then they count down to the appearance of Amaru. So they clearly have some new type ability. Yeah. And I don't remember which of those next bits are first, but we have Amaru talking to Lala again when he tells her, I'm sorry, I assume he means I'm sorry because I'm not dead and with you now, Mm -hmm. but I still have a place to go home to. Mm -hmm. And it's not the white base. It's like you said, it's the people.
0: Yeah. So I think when he says, I'm sorry, it's partially, I'm sorry, I can't come hang out with you in the afterlife. (laughs) Also, I think he's calling back to that conversation between the two of them when she said, you have no family, you have no homeland. And he said, well, neither do you. Mm. And he's saying, I'm sorry, but I do have a family and a homeland. Well, a family.
1: Even if she never got to experience that. Yeah. And at the same time, we get three shots- because we had to end with a reminder of Amro's mother complex. <laughs> Again, shots of the white base crew, and many of the shots have more than one person in them, but they're clear focused. The first one, Mirai. Second one, Fra. Third one, Sayla. Yep. Like all the important women in yep. Amro's life who are still alive. Yep. Call back to Matilda.
0: <laughs> Pour one out for Matilda.
1: Um... And we get a tiny, very sparse end narration. And all they say is, after this battle, they negotiated a peace and the end of the war.
0: The visual that that is laid over is the sun, the earth, and the moon, but viewed at a perspective and from a distance where you cannot see any indication of human life whatsoever.
1: They also point out that it it has become the year 80 in the universal century. It is no longer 79.
0: I believe this happened on January 1st. Wow. UC 80.
1: Okay. That's kind of (laughs) random that that's a known fact.
0: And during that narration, it says that the peace was established between the Federation and the Republic of Zion. Interesting fact, the prime minister of the Republic of Zion, who made that peace in the extended lore, is a guy named Darsia Bakarov. In case you don't remember, Bakarov was the name of the lady scientist piloting the Brabro. What? So that might be her dad or brother or husband Uncle. in some way related to some, her.
1: Somebody in that family. Yep. I feel like a lot of shows now would feel compelled in some way, unless they were strongly angling for a next season, to do some kind of a coda, to jump ahead a little bit and show us everyone's lives post-war. And they, I think, were probably pretty confident at this point that they were not going to get another season. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they don't don't feel the need to make it tidy in that way. Because this is a story about the war. It's not a story about and then, and then, and then.
0: It's part of what makes this final episode such a weird final episode and such a good one. You would expect a final episode to do kind of one of two things. Either... To be a massive crescendo to an ultimate climax, some super weapon or whatever.
1: Or a a duel to have the, but the duel, this duel isn't big, it's small.
0: Yeah. And it's not particularly important. No. It's an important moment for the two rivals to come together and fight, but it's not. it doesn't resolve anything between the two of them. Each one expresses their feelings about new types, but not in a complete way. No minds are changed and nothing really important happens. The duel is kind of pointless. The outcome of the duel is that they each go their separate ways and resume their separate agenda, which is what they would have done if there had been no duel at all. We don't really see much of the battle at this point, there is not that feeling of coming to a crescendo, coming to a climax. And the other thing that an episode like this might do is spend a lot of time showing us the aftermath. That's a very common thing to do at the end of a show, to do even an entire episode that jumps forward and shows us the and then and then and then. But it doesn't do that either. it spends a solid half of its runtime just focused on all of our heroes trying to escape.
1: Guess what we're trying to say is we like it. We
0: like it a lot. We thought Good was, ending. We
1: thought it was great. And that is a wrap. Yeah. Sort of. We, like mm-hmm. I said before, we want to talk about the structure of the season as a whole next time, as well as wrapping up some important research pieces. And then we will begin to move into our pre-research for <laughs> Zeta. I'm so excited. Woo! Bring on the eighties.
0: We've also got some movies to watch.
1: Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting about the movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then Can't we have some forget
0: about the movies.
1: And then we have some movies to watch and see how they stack up. And then we have Zeta. This week, we research and discuss some Japanese vocab. What the heck is an abawaku? (laughs) The Kyujo incident, and how Kai made Tom think of the Iliad. One particular word stood out to me in Space Fortress Abawaku, because it came up three times. Myo. Also, it sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember what it meant. The first time, Kaiselia says almost to herself, na, when she hears that the great Degwin was in the path of the solar ray. The second, Girin is commenting on the fact that Kaecilia has arrived with fewer ships than he expected. Da na. And the third, Mirai and Bright are talking about the temporary weakening of Abawaku, and Mirai says, Nanka I wish I could tell you it was something obscure or layered, but in this case, it just means strange, weird, odd, or curious. Hmm. Maybe it was stuck in the writer's head that day. (laughs) The second is one that Tom noticed and wanted me to look at. Me. This is a suffix you can use at the end of a person's name or a description of a person. When you use it referring to yourself, it's humble. There are a lot of words and phrases in Japanese that emphasize relative social position in formal situations where extreme politeness is important. Some of these elevate the person you're talking to, and this is usually called keigo, or in English, honorifics. And some of these statements lower you, the speaking person, and this is called humble language, or modest expressions.
0: But... In the episode, they're using this humble language to describe other people, like Amaro saying Sha, me. and Girin is describing the Federation as like Renpo, me. So
1: if you use me when talking about yourself or your in-group, you're being humble. But if you use it to talk about someone else, it's derogatory and rude. <laughs> so when you hear characters using it to talk about their out-group or their opponents, they are doing so in a derogatory way
0: yeah japanese doesn't have a lot of curse words as we think of them in english so often when you see japanese media being translated if you see a line like that damn char for example the japanese that they're translating is like shame
1: yeah you could attach a lot of different english curse words to get just the right <laughs> tone but
0: <laughs> that extremely low quality char
1: I've been practicing keigo with a friend of mine that I do Japanese language and conversation practice with, and it's really difficult for people to wrap their heads around when they first learn it, because to an American English speaker, it feels really put on. Like, it feels (laughs) antiquated. But it wouldn't have that sense in in Japan. And one of my favorite stories about this in Japanese is that a lot of Japanese parents want their teens to have a part-time job in the service industry at some point. Because if you work in the service industry, you have to use keigol, you have to use this honorific language all the time with your customers. And so you get very good at it. which you then need for job interviews, which you then need for interactions with your bosses, you know, it it comes up again in your work life. And so it's one of the ways in which young people can become good at this sort of formal language and learn how to use it properly.
0: The Space Fortress, Abaoaku Aku, is a fun little bit of Gundam lore, especially because every Gundam fan I've ever known has stumbled over the name when it first comes up. Especially if you read it before you hear it. How, we all at some point must ask, am I even supposed to pronounce this soup of vowels? A But even aside from how fun it is to say Abawaku, I love this name because it is one of the very, very few times in Gundam you can look at a name for something and know with absolute certainty where the writers got the name and just what they were referencing. And from there, you can make a pretty good guess about what they're trying to say by using this term. Because Abawaku comes from the book El Libro de los Seres Imaginarios, or The Book of Imaginary Beings, by Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges. The book was originally published in 1957, then updated and expanded in 1967 and 1969, before being translated into Japanese and published there in 1974 as Genju Jiten, The Dictionary of Mythic Beasts. There is an alternate, and to my mind, much better translation of the title, which is The Scientific Bulletin of Genuine Animals. (laughs) But either way, the book would go on to have a huge influence in Japan, including on, of all things, the monsters that appear in Final Fantasy video games. But it clearly also influenced Gundam, and it did so practically right away. The Book of Imaginary Beings is a compendium of stories about 120 fantastical creatures out of mythology, from legendary Egyptian fish to Anglo-Saxon sea monsters. It even includes Japanese stories about Kami and the eight-forked serpent sometimes called Orochi. Borges collected these stories from a wide variety of sources, some of which he cites. The Abawaku is the first story in the Book of Imaginary Beings, and Borges does include a citation for it. All right, so right now you are probably thinking, hold on, Tom promised me that we could be absolutely certain that Abawaku came from this one particular book. But if Borges got it from somewhere else, then surely Tomino and company could have gotten it from that same somewhere else. And don't worry, I thought the exact same thing. So I decided I was going to follow Borges' source and trace the Abawaku back to its real origin. And that's how I discovered something truly amazing. There are two different sources provided for the Abawaku legend. In the original Spanish version, he cited an unspecified note included in the classic 1885 English language translation of the Arabian Nights Fables, The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night by Richard Francis Burton. But in the original English translation, he cited instead to the 1937 treatise on Malay Witchcraft by C.C. Iturvuru. Although in later editions in English, this was changed to also cite to the Burton Thousand Nights and a Night. It was not hard to track down a copy of Burton's book of the Thousand Nights and a Night. It really is a classic translation, and being from 1885, you can find the whole text online. But no amount of searching turned up the tale of the Abawa coup, and I found reports from others pursuing the same quest, people with more resources to devote to the search who had a significant head start, and none of them could find it either. So, dead end. Time to go back and look for on Malay Witchcraft. Still, it's more than a little weird that this citation would change according to the translation of the book. And here's the other problem. As far as anyone who has ever looked into this can tell, there never was such a book as On Malay Witchcraft, published in 1937 or any other year. Not in Malaysia, not in Argentina, not anywhere. Nor, it seems, was there ever such a person as C.C. Iturvaru, although there was an Argentinian writer named Cayetano Cordova Iturbaru. But he never wrote about Malaysia or witchcraft. He was just, oh, he was just a friend of Borges. I see what happened here.
1: Joke citation!
0: (laughs) Yeah. The conclusion that I and every other person who has seriously looked into the origins of the Abawaku myth came to is that the citations here are, to put it kindly, a joke, and to put it accurately, a lie. The Abawaku is entirely an invention of Borges for the Book of Imaginary Beings. It reached Japan in the Genju G10, and six years later, at the beginning of 1980, it popped up in First Gundam. But what is it? And what does it mean to call Xian's final space fortress, Abawaku? It is said that the most marvelous landscape in the world can only be seen from the top of the Tower of Victory in a place called Chitor. Some people say Chitor is in India, and others place it in China, but no one really knows. There is a circular terrace at the top of this tower, but to reach it, a person must dare to venture up the stairs. The Abawaku lurks at the bottom of the stairs. It is a shapeless thing, formless and invisible. It lies inert until a person comes to climb the tower. But the vibrations, the aura, the spirit, as a person approaches, wake the abawaku and bring it to life, and it begins to glow with an inward light. When a person begins to climb the stairs, the abawaku follows after, almost on the person's heels. With each step, its form solidifies, and the light within it shines ever brighter. With each step towards the top, the climber comes closer to becoming a fully evolved and realized spirit the abawaku reaches its perfect form only when the climber reaches the topmost step but only one person has ever reached the top of the tower of victory in all other cases the abawaku freezes partially up the steps its color still undefined and its light unsteady unable to achieve its perfect form the abawaku suffers great pain and it lets forth a hideous moan then When the pilgrim fails to reach the top of the tower, the abawaku tumbles back down the stairs, its form dissolving and its light dimming until it reaches the bottom, once more translucent and undefined. But when the man or woman climbing the tower is filled with purity, the abawaku is able to reach the topmost step completely formed, and it radiates forth a clear and perfect blue light in a brief moment before it once again returns to the bottom of the steps to await the next person seeking to evolve to nirvana. So what does that actually mean in the context of Gundam?
1: Abawaku destroys the impure (laughs) and only leads to the perfection of the pure of heart, a.k.a. Amuro.
0: I think that's right. I think this is the one moment, the one place where by enduring great tribulations, Amuro has the potential to achieve his new fully evolved form to be a real new type. And it only comes at the end when the Gundam has been destroyed, when he's been wounded, and when he has had that realization that what is really important to him is the safety of his friends.
1: Well, and the climb up the tower is a great metaphor, right? Because here we are at the end of the war, and we knew from the beginning of the journey that the end of the war was the goal. But Amuro couldn't have reached the state that he's in at the end here without undergoing that whole journey, without climbing the whole staircase, (laughs) so to speak. He has changed along the way.
0: The design of a bawaku even looks a little bit like a tower.
1: Was Borges popular in Japan? Have you had a sense?
0: He appears to have been, especially at this time. uh, One of the Japanese culture ministers invited him to tour Japan. And the sources I've seen are a little inconsistent about when he actually made that tour. It was either in 1976 or in 1979. So Borges was in Japan doing the uh, literary tour right around the time that Gundam was being written. Very cool. Yeah. And since the Abawaku could not have come from any (laughs) other possible source, we know with absolute certainty that one of the writers, and probably Tomino, read this book during the production of Gundam.
1: Just as a fun extra tidbit, you mentioned that several Final Fantasy enemies are probably also taken from this book. Are Mm -hmm. there some that people might recognize or remember?
0: Well, the most famous one is the Carbuncle. Oh! Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neat! Kaecilius' coup made both of us wonder about coup attempts at the end of World War II. One of the best known and perhaps most relevant, so of course we have to talk about it, (laughs) was the Kyujol incident in Japan. This was an attempted military coup d'etat. I was just about to say, you know, oh, I have to start a ways back and talk about the lead up. But the lead up is really only about three weeks (laughs) before (laughs) the actual coup attempt. Everything was happening very fast at the end of the war. But Japan received the Potsdam Declaration, which was the terms of surrender that the allies would accept on July 26th. Emperor Hirohito and Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo agreed that these were the best terms that were likely to be offered. But the rest of the ministers were unwilling to agree. And so they were at a stalemate. August 9, following the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Soviet Union joining the war, against Japan specifically, and various other military losses, the ministers finally agree to the surrender. They hold a secret meeting of the Supreme Council for the Direction of War, and at this point, enough ministers agree that the declaration is accepted and notice of surrender is sent to the Allies many officers in the war ministry wanted to continue fighting. They were concerned that the authority of the government and the emperor would be subordinated to the occupation authority, not just some restrictions on sovereignty, which is what most of the ministries thought and which was sort of like, duh, (laughs) obviously, they're going to require that of us in the immediate post-war. They thought it was going to be virtual enslavement. Of the country, they were worried the monarchy would be abolished. They wanted to protect the kokutai, which literally means national body, uh, but can refer to the governing structure, politics, the imperial family, national identity, culture, race, (laughs) some combination of all of those things. And kokutai is a concept whose definition changed over time. But during World War II, really was used by militaristic and nationalistic groups to emphasize obedience to the government and the empire, and to emphasize the the difference and superiority of the Japanese people. Documents that spread that particular definition had been part of public school education, you know, were widely promulgated throughout the country. And so, of course, those were all removed during the occupation. But nationalist organizations still use a, a version of this concept. They've given it a new name. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's, it's still an idea closely associated with Japanese nationalism. The leader of the coup was Major Kenji Hatanaka, and most of its members were from the staff office of the Ministry of War, some members of the Imperial Guard, other young officers for the most part.
0: And if you remember back in episode 14, I think, we talked about this idea of leading from below, The idea that sometimes it was necessary for young officers to disobey orders, disobey their superiors for the good of the nation.
1: We'll talk about this more as I talk a bit more about this particular rebellion. But to me, it feels like a classic example of what happens when you are very effective with your propaganda. (laughs) Like you have all these young people raised on... A style of propaganda, the older folks are more cynical. They don't take it seriously. They see the propaganda as a way to control the masses and as sort of a necessary pretext for what they want to do, but they don't, they haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But then you have all these young officers coming up through the ranks who have, who've been raised on it, who truly believe it. And they don't grow out of it (laughs) in the way that the older officers and ministers might expect them to. And then you have events like this. So Hatanaka and the other members of the rebellion tried to get the war minister, Korechika Anami, to agree to do whatever was necessary to prevent acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration. But while he didn't act to prevent the coup, he also wouldn't agree to help them. He later seemed to be angling to support them, maybe? After the surrender was decided on August 14th, he talked to a few other high-ranking ministers and members of the army about simply continuing the war, including launching an attack on allied forces that were rumored to be nearby. There were rumors of an allied fleet right outside Tokyo, for instance. Ultimately, however, Anami announced at the war ministry that they would comply with the Imperial Edict of Surrender. Additionally, a group of senior army officers gathered and, due to concern about a possible coup attempt, signed an agreement to carry out the surrender, put their names to paper, made their position known. Because there was a feeling, okay, if everybody knows that all of these senior officials are going to comply with the surrender, then they are less likely to attempt to rebel.
0: And getting them to put their personal honor at stake rather than merely relying on them to obey orders from their supposed superiors.
1: The coup attempt itself occurred on the evening of August 15th. The corps group got a regiment of palace guards to join them by lying, basically. They said that various ministers and generals were on their side. <laughs> At this point, they went to a general's office on the grounds to try to convince him to join them. He refused and ordered Hatanaka to go home. Why he didn't have Hatanaka arrested, I'm not sure. Perhaps he didn't take Hatanaka seriously. He thought Hatanaka was hysterical and just freaking out and (laughs) would go calm down and everything would be fine. Uh, It's sort of unclear. Hatanaka hoped that simply by occupying the palace and showing the beginning of a rebellion, he would inspire the rest of the armed forces to rise up against the surrender. But he had no support from his superiors. He had already spent several days trying to win people over, and continued to do so over the first few hours of the rebellion. General Anami, the minister who we mentioned before, committed suicide during this time. In his note, he apologized to the emperor for a great crime— but it's unclear if he meant losing the war or taking part in the coup. Hatanaka and his men surrounded the palace and tried to win over an additional officer, Lieutenant General Takeshimori, who commanded the 1st Imperial Guards Division. When he refused, Hatanaka killed him, since he worried that Mori would order the guards to stop the rebels. He and his subordinates then used Mori's official stamp to create false orders. Just as a quick explainer for anybody who's not familiar, uh, in Japan, rather than signing documents, you have a stamp that has your name carved on it, and that's what you use to sign anything important. Everything from bank statements to signing for packages <laughs> to you know mortgages, leases, whatever.
0: Yeah. And even foreigners who are living in Japan basically have to get these because you can't do anything official without them.
1: So they took his stamp. It was basically like being able to perfectly forge his signature on official documents They blocked the exits, they severed the phone lines, they disarmed the palace police, and they began searching for the imperial household minister, Sotaro Ishiwata, and lord of the privy seal, Koichi Kido, as well as for the recordings of the surrender speech, which had been recorded by NHK staff earlier that evening. At the same time, another group of rebels attempted to assassinate the prime minister, who just barely managed to get away safely, and actually spent the next several months sleeping in a different location every single night to avoid (laughs) assassination attempts. Oof. By 3 a.m., the Eastern District Army was on its way to the palace to stop the rebels. Hatanaka desperately wanted airtime on NHK radio to explain his actions, but of course, the various generals refused. (laughs) And the regiment of palace guards they had lied to earlier, they found out that the rebels did not have the support of all those generals and ministers and ordered the rebels to leave the palace. Hatanaka left and, brandishing his sidearm, forced his way into NHK studios to try to get the airtime he wanted. After an hour in which the staff basically stalled him. Speaking of bad timing, there was a blackout at this time uh, because of a possible air raid. And during air raids, you had to have military clearance to use the radio because they were using radio specifically for like air raid warnings and things Mm. like that. So despite the fact that he's brandishing a gun at this NHK staff, they're like, without orders (laughs) from the army, I'm not going to put you on the radio. (laughs)
0: Uh
1: He finally receives a call there from the Eastern District Army and gives up. By 8 a.m., the rebellion was completely dismantled, the rebels at the palace grounds had all been sent back to their barracks after a dressing down. Uh, Hatanaka and his second rode through Tokyo on a motorcycle and on horseback respectively, distributing leaflets that explained their actions before they both committed suicide. This was surprisingly bloodless. I believe four people died in total and two of those were Hatanaka and his second committing suicide. It was a little odd for me because you always imagine in these scenarios people being made an example of and being arrested and punished and executed and, like, very severe. And this instead feels very, like, finger-waggy, like, you young people, (laughs) you should have known better. Mm -hmm. Like, go back to your room. Uh, And it's possible that just knowing that they were about to surrender and how much had already been lost and how many had already died, nobody had the stomach for any more violence at this point, particularly against their own countrymen.
0: There was also a long history in Japan, especially in the 1930s, of these kinds of aborted coups by low-ranking army officers, including some that got a lot bloodier than this. But most of them were resolved in a similar manner there was only, if I remember correctly, there was only one punished very, very harshly. And that, of course, was the last one, the one that came the closest to succeeding. And there was a sense that the emperor was simply tired of dealing with these repeated coup attempts, and he wanted examples made.
1: In some ways, I think this is a a great example of Japan's collectivist society, in a way, because you look at it and Everybody on either side of this rebellion, on either side of this coup attempt, knew that it needed majority support. And if it didn't have majority support, it wasn't actually a threat. You know, Hatanaka was desperate, but he knew he was constantly, even after it was clear that he was not going to succeed, trying to get more people on his side, trying to get trying to get build that consensus and majority support. He knew he wasn't going to succeed with a small group, that a small group was not going to successfully take over the government. And it's possible that some of the lenience afterwards was because they knew, like, okay, you guys didn't really have majority support. You didn't really pose a threat to us because you were not able to win over most of the group. Unfortunately, I did not have time to fully read the source, but I'm going to link to a book that talks about this time in great detail. But what I want to touch on is the fact that, like, we talked about the sort of mental state, right, the philosophy behind the war for a lot of Japanese soldiers, and the sheer fear and desperation and despondency of knowing they had lost. And they didn't know yet what the occupation was going to be. Like, we know now that in a lot of ways, the occupation was about about as good (laughs) as any (laughs) occupation by a winning army can be. But they were desperately afraid. They had been told they were all going to be massacred and Japanese culture would disappear. Like, they thought Japan was going to be made into the next US state and it was like, and that Japanese culture would be obliterated and the emperor exiled. And they were desperately afraid. Yeah. And had fought with everything they had and had lost. And everything that they had believed about Japanese superiority had proven false. And You know, in these circumstances, it becomes much less surprising that someone would make a last ditch like desperate attempt to go down fighting rather than to accept the surrender. Tom and I also really enjoyed there's a movie that covers specifically the very brief window of time from the the immediate beginning of the occupation to when they announced the decision not to force the emperor out of power. Because basically, (laughs) MacArthur got some military lawyers together and told them like, okay, I need you to investigate the war and tell me whether or not we should keep or remove the emperor. And you have like two weeks or something or a week. (laughs) He gave them almost no time. But they had to conduct an investigation and interviews and all of this in a completely war ravaged Tokyo Mm -hmm. and present a recommendation as to whether or not the emperor should be allowed (laughs) to remain in power. I think it's just called Emperor.
0: Mm -hmm. Tommy Lee Jones as Douglas MacArthur. It's pretty great. It's a great performance. Highly recommended.
1: It does a good job of looking at the very complicated nuances of the emperor's position. Because for a lot of Americans, they thought, well, he could have ended the war at any time. And that wasn't really true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it does a good job of conveying the complexity of that situation politically. Yeah. So highly recommend it.
0: It is no small thing to be the first soldier to land in enemy territory, as Kai does during escape. No other soldier enters so hostile a land, so bereft of friends. It's only Kai's natural caution, or what he would probably call his innate cowardice, that saves him from the fate of the mobile suit team that lands right after him, rushes past, and is eradicated a moment later. It calls to mind the bloody cost of Allied troops landing at Normandy, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, and a thousand other islands and beaches. It summons up remembered images of dead paratroopers dangling from trees and marines face down in the surf. In fact, there's a whole section in Starship Troopers, the hugely influential sci-fi novel by Robert Heinlein, that is largely responsible for the existence of the mecha genre in general, and the Gundam franchise in particular, that discusses the danger of being the first to land, In the Mobile Infantry, the powered-suit-equipped Space Marine Corps from whence Gundam got the idea to put the words mobile and suit together, their combat doctrine specifies that the soldiers in a unit launch in rank order, starting with the highest-ranking officer, so that no soldier is ever on the ground without a superior officer present. No soldier, of course, except that very first one to land. But more than starship troopers, this bit with Kai and the doomed Jims reminded me of a much, much older story from the Trojan War. That of a Greek hero, one of the suitors of Helen and one of those warriors who joined the expedition to retrieve her from Troy. Compared to the other Greek heroes of the Trojan War, from the big stars like Achilles and Odysseus, to the deep-cut favorites like Nestor or Telemanian Ajax, we just don't know a ton about this guy because, unfortunately, his role in the Iliad is pretty small, and other stories that give him a more prominent role have not survived. In particular, the Cupria, the epic poem which covered the origins and beginnings of the Trojan War, as well as a tragedy by Euripides named for him. From Thessaly, son of Iphiclus, king of the Philicaeans, young Aeolus traveled to far-off Sparta to seek the most famous bride in all of the Achaean world. He joined kings and princes in their throngs, and there contested with young Helen's half-immortal brothers, Castor and Pollux, for the right to woo her. His origins were noble. His father Iphiclus had sailed aboard Jason's Argo in days long past. But among his rivals for her hand were many as much god as mortal, a son of Hercules, another of Poseidon, and two sons of Ares. And all of them swore a sacred oath. Whoever was chosen to be Helen's husband, every other suitor, would defend him against any rival. But the maiden's favor did not light on Ioleus, and he returned home to Thessaly, and there married Laudemia, loving, devoted Laudemia. Then, still in his honeymoon, Iolaus received word of perfidy back in Sparta. Helen seduced, Menelaus betrayed, and every suitor called to honor their sacred oath. On a far off shore the winds of war stirred, and bloody glory sang promises to young Iolaus With his brother by his side, the newlywed prince left loving, devoted Laodamia behind, and at the head of forty ships he sailed to join the Achaean expedition much aggrieved and now delayed both by divine interventions against their progress and an accidental detour that included sacking the wrong city by mistake. Every warrior in the thousand ship Achaean Armada was eager to land and capture Troy so that they could all get home as soon as possible. Except that none among them wanted to be the first to step foot on the Trojan shore, for a terrible prophecy hung over all their heads, first to land, first to die. Did Iolaus not believe the prophecy? Did he not care? Did he think of Laudemia when he jumped from the prow of his black ship, spear in hand and shield shining brilliantly in the Mediterranean sun? Did he think of his brother Podarches on the ship behind him when his feet touched the wet sand? The enemy came at him, intent on throwing these invaders back into the sea before they could ever land, and if he thought it all then, it was only of the cut and the thrust. For a long, glorious moment, Iolaus defied prophecy, and his dancing spear sent four proud Trojan warriors to join the shades but then, from the hostile throng, carrying doom itself in his hands, Hector. For human beings cannot change their fates so conveniently, first to land, first to die. But for the Greeks then the spell was broken, and they surged from their ships, bent on vengeance. They took their first piece of Trojan land. In time, they would take it all, for better or for worse. And for Iolaus, sharing his life's last blood with the surf, a new name. The Greeks would ever after call him the First. Or as we know him now, Protesilaus.
1: I can't say that we feel at all sad about the <laughs> passing of Girin and Caecilius Zabi.
0: Or Degwin for that matter.
1: Or Degwin. I had forgotten he died in these episodes, <laughs> forgotten <laughs> about him entirely. But thus falls the house of Zabi. As Tom is always quick to point out, Sixemper Tyrannus.
0: Thus, always tyrants.
1: If you're wondering why you've heard that before, it's famous.
0: It's from the assassination of Caesar. Supposedly, Brutus said it when he stabbed Caesar.
1: However, we would like to mark their passing. Tom has found a suitable poem.
0: The Conquerors by Alexander Posey. Huh?
1: This i
0: The Caesars and the Alexanders were but men gone mad, who ran about a while upsetting kingdoms and were slain in turn like rabid dogs or died in misery. Assassins laid in wait for Caesar, wine amid the boasts of victory cut short the glory of the Macedonian. Deception cooled the fever Pompey had, death was dealt to Pyrrhus by a woman's hand, Themistocles and Hannibal drank deep of poison in their desolation.
1: Next time on episode 1.35, Aftermath, we will be talking about Mobile Suit Gundam as a whole series, the story, the structure, and any additional research topics we think are important to the series but we haven't already covered. From there... We will move into discussing the compilation movies. Will you be able to survive?
0: make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, First Gundam is the only Gundam worth discussing and MSB should stop now, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The zombie funeral section incorporates Parisian by Kevin MacLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
1: (laughs) with that to put us in the mood, (laughs) though the the mood for what is the question?
0: The mood for Sha. Sha, Sha.
1: Did you get what I was referencing? Oh, no, I was thinking of It's.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to do, this is the moment podcast fans around the world have been waiting for.
1: Fighting out of... (laughs)
0: Recording out of the. Um, Sheltered corner? Windward corner. corner. <laughs> <laughs> For fans of burgers in Gundam, there's another burger in this episode. During the scene where Sela is going through the hallways of Abawaku looking for Sharanamuro, she passes a view screen that's been left on and it's connected to one of the command rooms. And there's a Xeon officer eating a burger and saying, What? They've already started ground combat. Munch, munch, munch. Poor
1: It's all burgers and drinks in pouches. Oh no, is it a car alarm? Yeah, it was. This person can't figure. Someone outside can't figure out how to turn off their car alarm. What did I mess up? Uh, it's not a hard G on. Imag- I- Imaginario-
0: yeah. Imaginarios. 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 Yeah. El libro de los seres imaginarios. Thank you. (laughs) Nina is coaching me on Spanish as we're doing this. I, at one point, considered just making you say all the Spanish words as I did this, so it would just be like, me, 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 cut in, Nina.
1: I mean, I will if you want. (laughs) No. No. It's good practice for you.
0: I know. Mm.
1: Sorry, strike that, reverse it. (laughs)